Hi, hey, hello. My name is Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we are so excited to welcome you to the first ever episode of Trail Society. We are so happy to be in your ears right now. And I would love to, I mean, I'm going to put a little pressure on Keely here, but I want to intro the show to let you all know where we are, what you're going to be experiencing week after week. So Keely, can you just give the listeners a little lay of the land as far as what to expect over the coming weeks and months from us? Yeah, totally. Thanks, Corinne. Um, So this was definitely my thought baby that I kind of just threw on these two. And luckily they both were just as excited about it as I was. Um, And I think like the idea kind of came to me when I was with Dylan one day and we were talking about the state of all of the podcasts and reporting services out in the trail and ultra running world. We kind of were talking about how, as it's been growing, there's just been so many new forums coming online. And these groups are amazing, right? They're providing race coverage, interviews with some of the most, like the biggest names in the sport and a ton of content. And they're amazing. But I kind of saw a hole in this like podcast realm. And I really wanted to kind of fill it. And my thought was really going towards creating a consistent environment for the listener um, and kind of that they, something they could look forward to on a week or monthly basis and almost like establish a relationship with the hosts um, during like a, a chat show where we actually talk about topics together with the same three people um, on a consistent basis. And as I was continuing to receive like a ton of interest in the female health realm, as I was talking about training and overtraining and periods and all sorts of the nuances that come along with being a female athlete, but are actually never talked about, I thought it would be really cool to kind of marry the two um, and not only create this consistent community for discussion of all things around the trail scene, but also create like a safe space for women, women of color, and all other people that identify with all genders in this sport, where we can talk about some of these really difficult issues that nobody wants to talk about. Um, And hopefully as a whole, we could slowly begin to shift some of these narratives that have shaped the sport for so long. Um, So eventually this idea turned into um, a weekly or bi-monthly show where the three of us who have now been in the scene for almost a decade, which is absolutely bonkers and have watched it evolve um, as well as really, really nerd out about the science behind trail and ultra running and the body in general. Um, And it's a place where we can sit down and have an unfiltered, honest discussion about the state of the sport, issues that people may not want to talk about, like our periods or overtraining and how we want to kind of help the sport evolve. Um, And with previous conversations and runs that I've been on with both of these ladies from Hillary's like super refreshing and honest perspective on injury and rediscovery to all of Corinne's amazing scientific articles that she writes for a multitude of trail and ultra running publications. Like I knew that we could create something absolutely amazing. And so I am so excited that they were on board with my thought baby. And I'm so excited that you guys are here to listen to our first episode of trail society. Yeah. And to, to echo that I'm so excited. And I think that we've kind of all been on the same page, but maybe, you know, differently at different parts of the United States and in the globe at times. But I feel like I'm always brought back to this conversation. It was on a group run with Corinne actually at SFRC. And we were, I think we're also with Amy Liebman. I don't know how to say her last name. (laughs) And um, we were talking about like periods and 
training. And I was coming at it just from a curiosity standpoint, because I'm the super curious scientist as well. We are just like talking with Corinne. I, and I didn't realize there's this guy behind us. And we were probably talking for like an hour straight about this stuff. And this guy chimes in and he's like, wow, just so you know, I'm gay, but this is really interesting. And I'm like, well, okay. Um, and he's like, and he's like, if this is a podcast, I would listen. And so it's really cool to see something like this kind of brought to fruition. And yeah. And like I said, we're curious, all of us, we're all scientists. So I think we're coming at this from yes, a scientific perspective, but also just a discussion kind of jumping board into this pool of, you know, everything that involved that's involved in the community of trail and ultra running. Yeah. So to the four people who keep DMing me about starting a podcast, it's here. We're, we're doing it. Okay. So like we've got at least four or five subscribers if we count Dylan. So I think we're in business. And what we'd like to do today is, I mean, the show is not always going to be super female oriented as far as topics go, but I mean, we're three women, we're three white women. So we're going to, we have our own natural biases that we're going to try to work through on this show as well. And we're, we recognize that and we're going to, you know, the sport is set up in binaries and we're going to try to do our best to be an inclusive space. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to own our mistakes. You're going to call us out on our mistakes. And I'm really excited about that. And today we're going to talk about the gender gap in ultra running kind of setting this up with equity and equality and, and why this is on the front of our minds is that um, Hillary and I are recently at Hard Rock um, watching our good friend Dylan just have a great run in the men's race. But Hillary and I were also sitting in the front row of the women's panel for Trail Sisters there. And it was nine women who happened to be in the race of the 16 women who were in the race. And Gina of Trail Sisters got to make a huge announcement for for the sport, for us, particularly for women in the sport. And that was that, um, hard rock has kind of a diversity, inclusivity, um, gender equality panel. And it's made up of a couple board members, including, um, Gina and Darcy, but also community members like Megan Hicks. Um, and what they've done is that they actually came to this consensus that they wanted to represent the percent of women in the lottery make sure that that percent of women made it into the race field. And they're not a hundred percent sure exactly how they're going to do that yet. But an example, of this would be, you know, if there are 30% of women in the lottery, if it's a 30, 70 split, there will at least be 30% of the entrants will be women. And this year in particular, what that would have looked like is this is 16% or there were 16 women in the race rather. And if, if they had matched the actual number of, women in the lottery, they would have had 25 female starters. So, you know, we're, we're bumping up a little bit. And I think a lot of us are the three of us rather have, have done a lot of digging the past week or so as to like how, how women are represented in the sport of ultra running. And so I'm really excited to kind of hear your take on one, this announcement to get us started, like, wow, how cool, what do you think about it? Um, and then we'll kind of, you know, dive into some other races from there. Cause we've got a bunch of stats pulled that we all, we all worked on this week. You're muted. muted. (laughs) Oh yeah. So uh, just to set the stage, I wanted to kind of just start with a a small, just little story um, before we kind of dive into these stats. Um, So as Corinne mentioned, we were sitting at the front row of this Trail Sisters panel. Uh, This is the first women's panel at Hard Rock. And it was super special to be able to be there. And I think maybe there was nine women and that was the majority of the women's field in 
the race itself. You know, ranging from Sabrina Stanley to Darcy Picu to um, someone that you coach, Corinne, actually, I forget her name. Um, yeah, Aly- but- Alyssa Linfield, who was amazing, just like yes. had all these gems of, of points that we are all floored by. Yes. And so it was a really good perspective because she, Alyssa was aiming for just the cutoff times and we'll kind of speak to that a bit later, but there was a comment by, um, like they took questions after, and you guys can look at this on trail sisters, uh, uh, Gina Lucrezzi, she published, she recorded it and published it, but there was, uh, an older, an older couple, um, that were there and they, they commented and said how much this space, um, really, is inspiring to them because they're in their sixties and they just started running and discovering this whole new world of, of sport. And one of them mentioned that, you know, she was told when she was in high school um, that she couldn't run because it was of the belief that women's uteruses literally would fall out. Like it was unsafe for women to run. And so I remember like pulling this woman aside afterwards and you know, just telling her thank you for this because it really hit my my heart because my mother, she's 66 and it's in her generation when she was the first member of her high school class to be able to run track as a girl because before then it was deemed unsafe for women to do so. And now she has a daughter who's a professional athlete where this career was literally impossible and not even obtainable for someone of my mother's generation. And so the issues that we're talking about, it's, you know, they're, they're current. This is, I mean, this, this is not that long ago, you know, I'm, I'm 32. So this, this is not, uh, things that we're talking about that, you know, trends that we want to change. Um, we've got some work to do because for the better part of history, uh, this has not been the norm. Yeah, I mean, it was until 1984, women couldn't even run in the Olympic marathon, right? So that's like half a person ago. That's not very long ago. Yeah, and now we're three professional trail runners sitting here, which is like kind of bonkers that Hill, your your mom like was one of the first classes to get to run high school track and, and you are a professional trail runner. And I know that your intro to running too is linked to these kind of women who you know, had full-time jobs and were trying to be professional triathletes and road marathoners. And I think that that is, you know, you, you've gotten to see that through a mentorship from other women in the sport. And that's also part of this kind of two prong, um, thing put forward by the hard rock board was that, you know, they want, they want to provide mentorship for women. They want to like provide childcare, like all these things that are barriers to women in the sport. And so I'm kind of wondering if we can continue to riff on, you know, like, how do we improve this? Are there races that are doing a good job of this? Do we know of any races that are, that are like seriously considering this, um, outside of hard rock, um, who might be like the, the most skewed as far as percent male to percent female in the race. And like, what, what can we learn from those races and what kind of suggestions, are there any good suggestions to put forward? Like how do race directors take this on? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that for me comes to mind is the Lake Sonoma series is trying to put on a women's only trail race. And why that comes to mind right away is that back in the early nineties, when women were finally allowed to start running in races, not even the Olympics yet. Um, a lot of races were in the same, um, 
predicament, right? They were trying to increase women participation in running. However, just allowing more women into the sport wasn't necessarily like moving the needle. And so what they found actually increased the amount of women participating the most was like creating these races that were only tailored towards women. So they were women exclusive races. Um, And that's how they found that they boosted the numbers like so fast. And so I wonder if there's going to be more races that really take a stab at this, similar to the Lake Sonoma half um, that was supposed to happen where it was pretty much an only female race where it might be uh, an event that might draw way more women into the sport and give them a chance to feel like, like they belong in it and, and in a pressure or like a less pressure environment with fellow women. Yeah. And I also think that things like trail sisters, they're coming up with some really cool things for trail sister approved races. And I think this is also something to step in the right direction. Um, you know, basically having, having things like, like something as simple as a t-shirt that fits a lady, you know, um, or, you know, female, basically feminine hygiene products at races that they're not hidden that you can just, you know, grab them at the table because, if I had to count how many times I've had my period during a race, it's not zero <laughs> and it's definitely a lot. So it happens more than you think. Um, and so, and you know, we can, we mustn't, tra- we've mentioned trail sisters a lot, but there's this, this is the start of, and this organization isn't very old. And um, you know, it's, these are, these resources are all linked to the website there too. Um, but they, this, these, I think are things that we're, that we're talking about. I mean, in, in my race, um, racing, you know, history, I competed in races just five years ago that didn't offer equal payout and prize money for, for women. Um, even though the same number of elites kind of for men and women were, were considered present at the race, um, you know, or podium recognition, recognizing, you know, the top 10 for men and only the top five for women. So these, these issues, I think they're, they're changing. And it's also just, you know, bringing attention to them and calling out these races and saying, and not in an aggressive way, but asking questions like, why is this the case and why should it be different? Yeah. I think something that's really interesting here is that although participation is growing, like the number of applicants for these races are growing across the board, right? Like by thousands and thousands, you know, they're doubling their, their lottery numbers or the people who are applying for UTMB, for example. But I just, I just noticed this actually in our, in our stats that we pulled was that I pulled all the Western States um, stats from 2013 to 2020, as far as entrance in the lottery versus um, start, like who was on the finish line and who's on the start line for Western States. And there's been slight growth in the women's field and, and I mean, overall, like overwhelmingly, like the field itself has the number of applicants eligible to apply every year has gone up just like, it's crazy. The numbers are insane. It like doubles in 2016. It's wild. The poor, the poor board who had to go through that, those growing pains. But what I'm trying to get at here is that it's basically always been about a 20, 80 split, 20% women, about 80% men, about it, it fluctuates a very tiny bit. We look at UTMB. It's kind of the same thing. Like since the since 2003 in the inaugural year of the event, even though the number of applicants to the race and participants that actually get to go to the start line and finish line, it's still always been about 9% women. So it's like the sport is growing, but the number of women in trail and ultra as opposed like as compared to the, the men's field is is not growing as fast 
fast or is growing at the exact same rate. So I'm wondering how can we, how can we expedite the women's field? How do we get more women so that that percent goes, gets higher to 50, 50, because the field is going to continue to grow. Obviously more men are going to apply as well, but how do we get the, how do we boost the number of women who are applying to these races, who are making it to these start lines and making it to these finish lines, because that number remains stagnant in my mind. So I think it's basically, you know, it's really hard because right. Some people would argue, well, it's not fair to have, you know, to have a women's only race or to, you know, to increase the women's participation. For instance, I am thinking of a race like high lonesome 100 that just happened this past weekend. And, and Caleb after the, the, the race director, he made it a point to have the race be 50, 50. And so he capped the number of entrants for men. And, you know, when the women would apply, he'd let them in. And so I think in order for things to kind of reach equilibrium, we have to be a little bit top heavy and we have to take maybe more of an extreme and kind of swing the pendulum the other direction because the pendulum has been swung the other direction and kind of stayed there for the better part of, you know, forever. (laughs) But I mean, it's the better part of history, I guess. And so, um, I mean, I think, I think that those are kind of some strategies. And I think that's, I mean, that's also what, why we wanted to do this podcast and why, I mean, your, your idea, baby Keely. And, you know, with that, we were just right there with you because the sport needs female voices. And um, even though maybe it seems that we might be the minority in these, in, in showing up to races. And, and I mean, that's not even discussing topics of, you know, people of color. Um, And so I think if we start to have these conversations now and kind of take a leading voice, other things will happen. Yeah. No, I agree completely because I think like clearly there's been more women applicants over the years. Like if you're looking at hard rock over its entirety of its, of its life, right. From the 1990s till now, the amount of women who are finishing the race is going up. And so women are in the race and it's going up. However, if you look at the percentage of the total field from its inauguration till now, it stays stagnant. It's a straight line. It's absolutely crazy. And so I think like to your point, the only way to change this is to go to flip that pendulum the other way and kind of take a couple of years and go really far down the percentage of women allowed in and maybe overshoot it a little bit so that those numbers can start to kind of like level out because I don't think with the way that the system's currently working, we're ever going to get over that percentage of like 20 ish percent, right? Like it's just, it's not going to get there fast enough. It's going to take years and years and years to actually get the number of participants up to a level that I think is suitable. Right. And another issue that I wanted to talk about too, is because like you said, that, that level may is, especially for a race like hard rock, it maintains is it's stagnant, but this is also because of the nature of the lottery, that's been a topic of, you know, many discussions. We're not going to get into that. So this trail sisters thing is, is, um, this, this new precedent is, is I think a step in the right direction to increase the number of women, even on the start light of hard rock. And then we can kind of start to see the ball rolling forward. But I also want to talk about pregnancy and, you know, and this is a significant like obstacle. And I mean, obviously it's, it's not obstacle makes me sound callous, but it is an obstacle that women who want to have, who want to start a family and who still want to compete and be an athlete 
this is a consideration. I, as well as Corinne, we've, we've coached and I've, I've coached many women who literally put that in their training plan, who say, I want to have a baby. I need to plan this. So how do I, how do I plan my Western States? How do I plan my hard rock lottery? How do I plan these races given that I want to, you know, start a family? And then what does racing look like after that? And so and we're talking on the order. I mean, so it's, I mean, obviously not every woman can train through pregnancy and not every woman can, you know, we saw this famous photo from UTMB uh, from Alexi and he, he shot a photo of this woman breastfeeding at UTMB. Not every woman can do that. Right. I know a few women that can, um, who returned to sport in very quick succession after giving birth, but not every woman can do that. And I think it's, when we're, when we're talking about pregnancy and, and getting women to the start line of these races, it's not only that their hips have to heal, it's, it's, it can be considered an injury, but then we're also talking about, uh, you know, time for training when you have kids and then also, you know, what that means for childcare. So this kind of is a segue into another thing that was a grant with trail sisters in the North face, where it was a childcare grant where, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a small amount of money, but it's basically affording a small amount of money to some women who apply for the grant for childcare so that they can actually, even for just the event of a race to have that, that burden being taken off of them. And I mean, you know, think about your significant other, um, you know, this is if you're a male or a female, usually your significant other, like you probably share some similar activities. So it's not just you're fighting for your time to train. It's also for your partner's time. And then, you know, it can be very messy. And so I think this is another barrier that we have to consider as women, you know, um, when, when we're looking at these start lines and wondering why women's names aren't, aren't, aren't on there, even though there's a lot of female participation in the sport. Yeah, I would consider these like barriers to entry, right? And there's lots of barriers to entry. And, and you know, obviously this, this, we're talking a little bit, I mean, I think this goes beyond like the typical, the typical family, you know, dad, mom, babies, any, anyone, right? Your partners, your significant others, your, your children, right? You're, you're juggling all of this. And I think it's important to recognize that there is, you know, women or people put in that role oftentimes have a bunch of unpaid labor that they're doing. There was a woman at the hard rock panel who literally was holding, I think a two-year-old on her hip, kind of not sitting on the bench because she had to be kind of off on the side, like corralling this toddler and talking about how like she doesn't have time, that she's tired. Like that there's all these things that are barriers to entry. This can be fear. This can be time. This can be finances. Um, this can be not having the support of your partner or your significant other, or it not being seen, not seeming like it's, it's of a value to you. And so I think that there are other barriers to sport that need to be addressed beyond childcare. And I worry a little bit, my initial response to these lottery breakdowns was initially when I thought about like, I don't want to artificially inflate the women's field. Like that was my initial response. Like I'm being very honest here. My initial response was like, I don't think we need to make it artificially 50-50. And looking at like the Western States data, for example, from there, from those lotteries, the lottery actually favors women a little bit. I don't know how this works. I don't know. I'm not a data scientist, but it's the the lottery applicants are generally about 20-80, 20% women, 80% men. And generally speaking, it's trended slightly higher for women, i.e. if there's 20% women in the lottery, 22% women actually get into the field. So it's like, I don't want to hinder that 
either. But what I'm recognizing as I as I sit here and I think about this and I I think about inclusivity and bringing other people into the sport, um, I I also wonder if boosting lotteries, you know, quote unquote, artificially to increase the participation of women in the sport, if that also picks up other groups who are less who who are less prevalent in the sport. Does this get more people of color into the sport? Does this get more people who identify as non-binary or trans into the sport? Does increasing that field that's allotted towards the women's field, you know, quote unquote, artificially inflating it after, you know, years and years and years of this being a male dominated industry and a male dominated sport, because sport is still male dominated, it turns out. Um, I, I wonder if more than women benefit from that or more than, you know, more than white women benefit from that. And to me, I, I hadn't really thought about that, that in that way. And I think it's an important area to think about, like how do like inclusion goes beyond, goes beyond gender. I mean, we're three white women here talking about inclusion. So inclusion and diversity. So we're, we're gonna, you know, like we have our biases, obviously, um, but I'm, I'm curious if that innate response to not wanting to artificially inflate the lottery, like I know that there's gonna be pushback from other people when races do that. And there are gonna be people who are gonna support those races because they do that. And I think it's worth it. But I wonder, you know, if, if either of you have a strong, a strong feeling about that or have thought about that as you look at races or as you look at the data, for example. Yeah, well, shocker, but not really. Nobody actually records ethnicity or anything like that at trail races. Um, so there's no real data on that. But I mean, if you just think about it holistically, like if there's 30% of women in the lottery, then, and we know how non-inclusive trail running can be and how white dominated it can be, then we're looking at a really small percentage of women in that subset of already small women that are of different ethnicities, right? Um, and so I think that like by artificially inflating the women's field, you're hopefully bringing in some more people of different ethnicities and backgrounds into the sport. But in my mind, that even lends itself to like going way overboard and trying to really over index on females because I think you would kind of bring in different, different people into the sport as well. Yeah, and, and Hillary, I think this is a good area. I want to I want to tee you up here a little bit. You've raced a lot in Europe. You've lived in Europe extensively as well. I, I think that we are ever so slightly ahead of this in the um, in the American and the North American trail and ultra scene. But I'm it it seems to be skewed even further male in Europe. And I'm wondering if I mean you've already highlighted races that don't pay equally or don't award equally. What what else have you seen over there or have you seen changes over there at all? Yeah. And that's a great point too. And I was actually, this is perfect tea up Corinne, um, because I, I was going to say that I think when we start to have these conversations and talk about inclusivity, yes. Okay. We're coming from the perspective of women, but that's a starting point. That's the jumping off point. And then if we're going to be the example then, then other people, no matter, you know, what gender or how they identify or what, you know, race or ethnicity they are, they're going to look at trail running and say, look, trail runners are doing this. They're actually making an effort to be inclusive. So I think this is the starting point. And yes, Corinne, I do, I do think that, uh, that North American 
races are doing a better job at this. Uh, the majority of my career has been racing in Europe, uh, sky race, sky running, um, sky racing, uh, the, the verdier, the better. So I usually go across the, the ocean for that. Um, but it, you know, it, it was even in European championships where, like I think of this high Van in France, and there was the equal number of women introduced on the elite panel, yet uh, only the top five were recognized and the top 10 were recognized for men. And this was back in 2017. So not very long ago. Um, and since then, I think that there was some, like I, I remember Silke Corster, she did a kind of a public call out and, and there was, there's been several articles written on the trail sisters website about it. And so I think some of these races were called kind of called out, especially if they're very popular races, um, to, to ask them why and to change their precedent and people were kind of boycotting going to them. Um, but this is a perfect segue, you know, I'm going to tee Keely up, uh, you know, we were going over some data earlier, um, and, she already mentioned kind of the, the UTMB stats, but this is a perfect example. We think of UTMB as the iconic, you know, race and the, everyone who's in ultra running, they, you know, it's either you want to do UTMB or Western or, you know, hard rock and UTMB, you have a better shot because they have over 2000 participants. And I was shocked to learn how many of them were actually women. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked too. I told all of my friends that were in the house as soon as I calculated it, because I was like, listen to this, but yeah, I was shocked. I mean, just pulling the data from 2019 finishing of UTMB, there were 1600 ish uh, total finishers and only 144 women. So 9% of finishers were women. That's 1400 men on the course and 144 women. That's absolutely crazy. And it kind of holds true for the rest of the races in that series. Um, CCC shows about a 15% ratio of women to men and, and TDS is around 11%. So the race that Hillary absolutely stomped the year in 2019, she was one of 120 women out of a field of over a thousand. So pretty crazy. Yeah. And so again, and I know that if, and so we were just talking about, you know, Western states and, you know, um, I think there's a lot of, like a lot of conversations, oh my gosh, the women blew it out of the water and they were, you know, so many women finished in the top 10 and I'm just like, okay. So then, you know, when I do well in a race or when either any of us do well in a race, we are going to place within the top percentage of overall finishers and, you know, and, of the finishing field. Like I remember in TDS, I think I placed to either, you know, between 25 and 30 overall. And there's been races where, you know, we're seeing that women can, you know, place, I've placed third in a race before there's been races where, where women have won overall. Um, but, you know, just talking about this, it's like, so what happens, you know, when there's equal representation, uh, and you know, and we're already, we're already doing well at the elite level, but then this is a thought that I have too, is that, well, no wonder there's not equity in the sport. No wonder there's not equal sponsorship and pay, even if the women who are doing super well, you know, if there's, if there's just more guys out there, then how are we supposed to compete if we're not, you know, viewed as, I don't know, important or, you know, just because we don't cross the finishing line. Uh, first, uh, doesn't mean that, you know, our race isn't, isn't valuable. And I mean, in TDS in 2019, it was the first time, the first time in 2019 in the history of all of the UTMB series of races that the women's field had a separate, uh, media and camera crew following the top three women. 
that was, I was sure to make it interesting for those guys too. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really cool point because <clears throat> as I was looking at some of the hard rock data and, and I swear I'm not the nerdiest out of the three of us, but somehow I'm the only one who's referencing the data the most. Um, but when I was polling the, like the more like relevant years of hard rock or more recent years, as the percentage of women was kind of like, or the number of women was increasing, the number of women in the top 20 was also increasing. So basically if there were 10% women in the field, there was 15 or more percent in the top 20. And that kind of held true for the past like four years of hard rock where there's this like disproportionate amount of women finishing in the top 20 of this crazy race. And so, yeah, to your point, like we're, we're, we're the minority, but we're definitely finishing in the top parts of the race, at least like that elite group. And I feel like that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I think this is going to, this is going to piggyback off this perfectly. So I was talking to AJW who was speaking with the race director from High Lonesome. And once again, the High Lonesome race director has gone out of, they've gone out of their way to try to make this race 50, 50. It was a little skewed this year because they ended up running through their wait list and their wait list was established for this race for the canceled race last year before they made this policy happen. And so their wait list was not one male, one female, one male, one female. And so their race is a little bit more skewed male this year than, than their intention. And, and they're like addressing that for the wait list for next year's race. Um, but what I'm going to read directly this quote, um, and try to paraphrase it a little bit. So in speaking to the race director, um, of the women who, who, who were DNFs, so did not finish 40% of the women who did not finish were cut off, i.e. they, they timed out, they were forced out of the race and 53% of the women, um, who did not finish, they dropped the men on the other hand, 39% of them that, that dropped were timed out. And 61% of the drops for the men dropped themselves. They said, I'm done. So what, what this race director, what he took away from that was that, that based on their perception, speaking specifically of drops, the women are less likely to quit until they are forced to. And so we've gone back and we've been talking about this, this need to art, you know, and I keep using the word artificial inflation and that, that sounds so negative. Um, so the, like going 50, 50, like, doing that, doing that intentionally, let's say intentional inflation, intentional inflation, as opposed to artificial of the women's, of the women's field getting drawn in. Alyssa Linfield brought this up in the women's panel that she believed that some, but part of the reason why women are less likely who, who have hard rock qualifiers even are less likely to apply for hard rock is because they are worried. They're not going to make the cutoffs. And the same goes for the hard rock qualifiers. They are worried. They're not going to make the cutoffs. So you have all these women who aren't quitting who aren't pulling themselves, who aren't saying, this is too hard for me. I'm going to stop. They run out of time. And so to intentionally inflate the women's field to try to get more women involved, like the three of us are at near the front of the sport, at the front of the sport, we're competing for wins. Um, our view of this is very different than the average female trail runner. And I think that's important that we're talking about all women, you know, the front of the pack, the back of the pack. If we are intentionally not we're intentionally inflating the women's field to 50-50, does that mean we should also address potentially these time cutoffs so that women who are stepping up to the start line to challenge themselves have the opportunity to actually finish what they've started? Will that will that bring more women into the sport at, at all levels, not just the elite level? Like what like is that a reasonable request or suggestion? 
I'm fist pumping in the background. If you guys, if you could see me, um, because yes. And I think, I think this is an interesting conversation because, you know, yes, we're, we're starting to, we're competing for wins. We're at the front, but when scientifically, when I, when I look at this, when I think about women's physiology, women, generally speaking, have lower VO2 maxes because we're smaller. We, our physiology is different yet. When we look at endurance sports, we are pretty much evolutionarily adapted to go long. I mean, our physiology, we are, I mean, this is another topic that I want to get into for like fat adaptation and like fasting and all this stuff. Women, we don't need to do it. Follow Stacey. Two weeks, two weeks. We'll do this (laughs) in two weeks. Don't worry. (laughs) Next episode. So I can go on my ramp, my rampage then. Um, But so we know we're already adapted physiologically speaking for endurance, because we can metabolize fat more efficiently. So we're, our physiology is already there, but I think just because, you know, we're, we're a little bit different also, maybe we don't have the capacity to run, you know, I'm speaking generally. And when we're looking at the, the quote unquote average runner, this is not meant to be mean. This is just, this is like a fact of science, right? There's medians, medians here. There, there are still medians, right? Median, exactly. And so, and so, uh, I think in order to to boost the number of women in this sport, it needs to be more inclusive. And in order to do that, it is okay increasing percentages. But if still you you open them up and women are like, well, I don't know if I can make that cutoff, then I think we do need to look at these different time cutoffs and to to increase them for just more representation for you know for for people who can finish these races and the times and and be more realistic. If we're going to be including more runners and those runners that we're including might be more like towards the, the median uh, or, you know, the end of the, of, you know, the fit to running these races to finish. Yeah. Yeah. It might really require some, some, some like searching into what, what an acceptable range for these kind of races would be for women, because maybe it's not turning into something that's dangerous. Cause I think a lot of race directors cut races off based off of like their expected danger, right? Like they don't want to put people in danger. And so I think some digging obviously needs to be done in terms of like how long is, is long enough as well as like deferring people from danger. Um, but one other point I feel like we should think about in this space is that these women haven't been able to run in this sport for a long time up until recently. Like they've been the, the, the main provider and the main like support for the family, right? Like they've been doing most of the house work and obviously that is shifting. However, that's going to lead to less time that they can train compared to their male counterparts. And so they might be coming into this race at a disadvantage to begin with, and therefore not able to maybe hit these, these cutoffs that would put out there by a man. So if we could like come up with some sort of balance where women can get that time back and are able to maybe train a little bit more like their male carnal parts, maybe that time cutoff kind of becomes a little more irrelevant as well. So shifting ever so slightly here. And I think this, so, you know, we, we've talked about things that we think are, are practical that race directors can dig into that, that we can dig, dig into as a, as a community, as a, as a trail society. But if I, so the Olympics are going on right now and we're going to, we're going to steer haphazardly this direction, but um, NBC has been putting out this program called on her turf which is, which is really excellent. They've been doing some great interviews, um, specifically with female and non-binary and and athletes and trans women. It's been really, really awesome, um, to get to, to listen into this. And one of the interviews they did was about with, was with female coaches, two female basketball coaches. Um, 
One is a current um, WNBA coach um, for Seattle and one has been coaching collegiately. I think she's retired now from the college circuit, but she was coaching collegiate women's basketball in the eighties. So she is OG for this, for like for women in coaching. And they were talking a lot about, you know, how do we increase the representation of women in sport and women in coaching and women in these positions of power. And so I think part of this, not only do we go about, you know, bringing more women into the actual events, but how do we get more women running? How do we get women running beyond middle school, beyond high school, beyond college? How do we get, how do we reach new, new runners? What, what does that look like? How do we lower the barrier to entry and how do we make this weird, crazy, silly, sometimes stupid sport that we do more universally approachable to like two women? Yeah. So these are all super so good fix the salt, like save the world guys, Come on. save the world. I mean, I think, and I mean, it's, it starts small. It starts individually. It starts, you know, something like this, but it also starts with, you know, having placing yourself in a position of authority, you know, as women coaches and then learning about your own physiology. I've learned a lot about how I train as an athlete in real time in my athletic career. Yes. I've had a great coach, who happens to be a male who has encouraged that scientific exploration and, you know, how to periodize training with your menstrual cycle and how, you know, for recovery, for, you know, an athlete, uh, for a woman athlete, maybe I need a couple more days than just, you know, doing, doing a workout, you know, what, like, you know, with one day of rest in between. Well, so it, it's these conversations that we need to have and to educate ourselves and educate others. Um, educate other girls. I was listening to a podcast actually, um, with Tina Muir and she had this discussion and, um, she was interviewing someone about, and she, she's a, she's a coach and, you know, women, how they go through puberty at different ages. So in order to get girls in sport and keep them in sport, whereas, you know, a, a, a man's progression, or I was just say a boy in high school is a linear progression. You know, they get stronger and build muscle and have more testosterone from a freshman to their senior year. And they can see linear progression and improvement in their times. However, for a woman, that's not the same. It certainly wasn't the same for me. I mean, I was not, I was a tennis player. I ran cross country for fun in high school. I, you know, as a mid twenties to, to late twenties, I PR'd in my 5k. And so, I mean, uh, uh, women and girls, how, you know, their body changes. And so if they go through puberty and they get a little extra fat in the form of boobs, and then, you know, then their body changes and they're running a little bit slower times, their progression might not be linear, but then they're not viewed as quote unquote coachable because they've plateaued. And so then the attention goes on the next faster woman who happens to be, you know, another freshman who maybe hasn't hit puberty yet. And then we wonder when we de deal with like eating disorders in sport. Okay. You know, Mary Kane, um, just, just saying, so we can, you know, like this, all of these things, um, are what have to be addressed. So, uh, maybe, you know, having a, a cross country team with a woman coach, not just, uh, you know, male, male coaches. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes, it, it means that we have to get women excited about this and passionate. I mean, maybe you can hear from my voice. I'm really excited about it. If I could like coach on every single high school girls team, I would. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's talking about these issues and it starts young, right? Because I mean, like I mentioned with that story, you know, it, it's not that long that women have been even allowed to compete in, in high school. And that's kind of where we start to see this. I mean, 
you know, women into sport and taking it seriously and then having it a priority throughout their life. Yeah. Did either, I mean, I was thinking about this today while watching this um, episode of, of on, on her turf about what kind of coaches that I have growing up. Like, did I, did I see representation? My mom, my mom had been a runner in high school and college. And so I knew, I knew that I was not inherently a runner as a kid. Um, I played every other sport though, that I could possibly get after. And there's a lot of, you know, who, who coaches U8 soccer dad's coach, U8 soccer, who coaches U12 soccer, dad's coach, U12 soccer. So it's like, how do you see that represented? How do you see yourself represented in the sport? And this goes beyond women, right? This is people of color being represented, people who are gender fluid or agender or non-binary being represented. Like you have to see yourself represented somewhere, I think, to know that you can do something oftentimes. Um, So there's a lot of firsts happening right now. But I was thinking about that today. Like, when did I have my first female coach. And I don't think I, I had a very rare experience. My collegiate ski coach was female and she was one, I think of three collegiate female ski coaches, both in Alpine and Nordic who, who was female at the time. So I think I had a very unique experience, but it took until college to have that. And I, and I haven't had, she's the only female coach I've ever had. And I don't think it's because women can't coach or that men are better coaches. Obviously, you know, all three of us will argue against this, but I think that that is interesting because you don't see yourself represented there. Like how, how do we, how do we change that besides telling, like telling girls like, or showing girls that they can, like, how do we practically do that with brands, with races, with, with, within our sport? Yeah. And I think like, it starts, it starts with what we're doing now. And I also, I was thinking about that same thing is my first, I think maybe it was a, you know, a semester in, in middle school where I had, you know, kind of the PE teacher be my coach in tennis. But when I think about it throughout the history of sports, um, I've had male coaches and even my, my current coach now he's a male. I mean, my, my, so that's not to say that, you know, that can't work. I think the coaching relationship, like it definitely has to, it has to work, um, you know, communication wise and personality wise. Right. But I think it goes along more like that's, you know, me kind of interviewing coaches and seeing who I want to work with. But when you're at kind of, you know, public schools and at these places where that's a really impressionable age is to have, have a, a woman figure be there. And, um, have that be encouraged. Uh, and yeah, like I said, I think it, it just, it just starts with this. And if, for me, even in my professional running career, I mean, I looked up to people like Emily Forsberg and Anna Frost and I saw them crushing it and they're really what encouraged me to get into sport. And if I didn't have those role models kind of paving the way, you know, potentially my trajectory would have been different. And then, you know, I was, I was running with this group of 50 year old ladies, you know, in the early fifties, like you know, three days a week at five 30 in the morning. They, and they were the most badass women that I knew. And, you know, they were quote unquote professional runners for Reebok in the eighties had incredible resumes yet. One was a full-time engineer. One was a lawyer. And, you know, it's like they, they, they wouldn't afforded the, the, um, you know, they, well, maybe they weren't afforded. Basically they were not compensated for their hard work and what they deserved and and having the opportunity to be, to pursue sport full time. And, and so, you know, I, I had those role models, but not until my mid twenties. 
And so I think that that's, you know, um, it's our responsibility to, to do that. And I think this podcast is one of them. And again, you know, on this podcast, it's, it's a round table discussion. I don't think we, we can offer our opinions and potential solutions or point, you know, to organizations that are doing good things and kind of getting the ball rolling in the right direction. Of course, I don't know all the answers. These are, these are our opinions, but I'm, and it's my hope that these conversations that we're having here in trail society will make everyone think whether you're, you're female or male, and then it's starting these conversations. And then hopefully that will bring about change. Yeah, absolutely. And then I just had kind of a thought while you were talking about that. And I'm just wondering how related like female dropout of sport is to females trying to be coaches, because I guess like if you don't have someone being your number one fan and helping you through these hard times where you're going through puberty and you're trying to play sport in a body that you don't recognize anymore. And so therefore you, you leave sport because it's something that's embarrassing to you and you can't perform well anymore. Like why would you then turn to be a coach? And so I think the two like kind of go hand in hand really well, where as we continue to educate coaches, male or female, on how to really um, work with female athletes as their body changes and keep them in sport. And, and that might be by a multitude of things and really keep their relationship with sport healthy. I think we'll like artificially start seeing more women turn into coaches because they're, they're having a better experience with, 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 with sport and they're able to stay in it longer and pass on that knowledge to, to other women in it. Yeah. And there's, there's good organizations that are working on that. Right. I think the women's the women's sports foundation puts a lot of effort into um, keeping girls involved in sport because they do drop out at, at increasing rates. And, and part of that is, yeah, you're, you're, I, I mean, I was a freak. I went through puberty in, in middle school. I have not grown besides putting muscle mass on basically since I was in like seventh grade. Um, so I, I did not have to go through that. I watched teammates go through that though. I watched teammates really struggle with that and really, you know, come up against disordered eating because they didn't recognize themselves in their bodies. And I, I wonder if that kind of ties into, to some of that it's part of, it's probably cultural, right. And we've, we don't really need to go down too many rabbit holes, but you know, we talk about the image required to be a female athlete. I always joke that men that are fast are like, Ooh, like they can get contracts because they're, they're fast women. I feel like it's like, you're expected to be pretty. You're expected to fit into X, Y, or Z. You're, you know, you're expected to be this, like this thing. And it doesn't matter if you're fast necessarily. And I've always come up against that and been so incredibly frustrated. And I think that I am not alone in that. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, how, how that might impact, impact women's participation in sport. So I'm going to chime in. Uh, so yeah. Um, first of all, my background is tennis and let's just say I am, uh, so tennis, right? Like it's, I got into it just because I, I loved how gritty it was. And then when I got a scholarship to play in college, uh, like we were required to have, yeah, we were required to have a, a uniform, a matching uniform. I'm more of a, you know, like cut off shorts, tank top kind of gal. Um, and uh, we were required to, you know, wear skirts and uh, or dresses. You know, the, the day where all the girls in the tennis team decided to pick a dress as uh, the team uniform pretty much my worst nightmare, but it was tennis. It's like in the culture. Okay. So now 
go to trail running. I'm in a sport where it's, it's gritty. I mean, I run these races where, you know, it's so much vertical gain. Like it's, it's just, you have to be, you just have to have a certain amount of grit and stubbornness and it gets gnarly out there. Trail running is not glamorous. I mean, like there's like blood, sweat, tears, sometimes poop. Like it's just ridiculous. Um, and now we are not only expected to fiercely compete and, you know, put it all out there. But the day that I got in my athlete package, uh, a kit of a skirt, I was a bit offended because to me, the underline of this is I'm also expected to look cute. And I think we can even relate that to what was happening in the Olympics for these, you know, basically to, oh, well, we need to get, you know, viewership up for women's sports. So we're going to put them in some bun huggers. I'm like, oh my gosh. So again, it's, it's people, it's, I'm not, I'm not discriminated against if you want to wear a skirt, like go for it. But I'm, you know, I don't like that. That's kind of the underlying tone there. Yeah. This is the first time I just, I just heard this the other day. This is the first time in the Olympics that women's softball players were not required to wear shorts. They could wear pants if they wanted to wear pants and the softball team, like I, you know, they were asked like, why, like they asked the IOC, like, why were they required to wear shorts? They don't wear shorts when they compete. Have you ever seen an NCAA softball team? They're not, they're not wearing shorts. Um, I've never worn shorts playing softball personally. Um, but it was said, oh, it's so that we could tell the the male players apart from the female players, like the male baseball players wear pants, the female softball players wear shorts. Like it's like, I don't think that that is necessary for viewers to be able to identify if it is baseball or softball, there are some other things happening that might cue you in to that a little bit, but it's kind of this like archaic platform that's put up. There's been a lot of hot talk about um, the German gymnastics team who intentionally wore um, unitards instead of leotards during team qualification. There's the Norwegian, yeah, unitards, super sexy word, full panted um, skin suits essentially, because they didn't want, they didn't want to be in bikini cut leotards, which like more props to them. If I was flipping around on a four inch beam, I don't think I'd want to be in a leotard either, honestly. Um, but you know, everyone needs to do what's going to make them feel most confident and most comfortable. And that's a dip that looks different for everyone. And that goes back to like the Norwegian, um, beach handball team. They were issued fines for not wearing their quote unquote, like it had to cover 10 centimeters of or it needed to be 10 centimeters of fabric. Essentially, they, they were wearing bikinis to play this sport and they wanted to wear spandex shorts instead. And, and Pink brilliantly, um, you know, said that she'd pay, pay those fines. And so this seems like archaic and also endemic in sport that women are expected to, to be more than good at their sport. And I think that this is, you know, I, I don't know how to fix this besides have really good mentors and examples, but um, we've all experienced it to some degree. And I wonder if anyone has any other kind of ideas or clarity that, you know, that we can bring to, to trail and ultra specifically about, about, you know, what, what is expected of female athletes? Yeah. Well, I think this ties in really nicely with our previous conversation around performance, right? Like if you're forced to wear something that looks good, like that might not make you perform at your highest level. And so what I think is really lacking and what could be really awesome in the space is 
let's not make like a skirt for a woman trail runner because we think they should look good in a skirt. Let's make something that is like maybe uniquely female that allows her to freaking be a rock star in the sport. And it might not mean she looks like a a Barbie doll, but it might allow her to actually run in her potential and have like very functional gear and apparel that's actually tailored towards her. And I think like we've kind of never done that, right? It's always just been about looks and never about performance for the female athlete. And I mean, just for, you know, some ad living here, um, Courtney DeWalter, I mean, badass, right? She, she, I mean, she is killing it in, in ultra running. She is one of the best, if not the best at this like ultra, ultra distance, you know, running. So if we have a badass woman and she's choosing to wear what she likes, which is, she's gotten a lot of, you know, attention for this, her long basketball shorts. Well, if, if, you know, other brands want to model success, why aren't they sending us basketball shorts to run in? And why are they sending us a skirt? So I think one, one option here, one clear option, right. Is that when you're delivered a team kit, like what, like give us options, right? Like all of my shorts do not need a three inch inseam. I'm not a three inch inseam girl. Like, I'm sorry. Like I have thighs, like I will chafe, you know, give me, give me a five inch inseam. Give me a six inch inseam. Like, yes, yes, please. So I think it's, it's one of those things. And this has been brought up at the Olympics over and over again too. Like why can't players play in a hijab? And they've always said, well, it's dangerous. And it's like, who's it dangerous to? Like they, they want to be like, they want to be covered. This is part of their, their identity, their, their religious beliefs, like their cultural beliefs, like they should be allowed to compete in, in a way that makes them feel comfortable. And I think that that goes back to it. Like Courtney is comfortable in those shorts. I'm comfortable in a slightly longer short. Like it's, it's all these things where it's like, I think if, if women are given options, instead of having to be cookie cutters, then all of a sudden, you know, like it, it gives you the freedom to feel comfortable in your body. And maybe that's, you know, that also lowers another barrier to the sport of having to be, to be a certain thing or look a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, we didn't have to jump just from like only having men's apparel to having really shrunk and pink and skirt apparel for women. We could have went somewhere in the middle where we actually are looking at different options for women as well, but I think we'll get there. I hope we get there. Yeah. And it's, I think it's already starting to it. So, I mean, I have all of these opinions, but I mean, I'm, I'm supported by a great brand. So it's like, yes, they give that option for people to wear skirts, but then if I obviously don't want like my athlete manager, she knows she's just like sending me that. She's like, just in case, you know, you're feeling girly one of these days. So we like, <laughs> we like, we joke about it, but um, yeah. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of that balance and having just, yeah, definitely just like options. Um, and yeah, it's a kind of why we're all here just to kind of talk about these issues and just to, to bring them to light, you know, have these solutions maybe that, you know, that I see, um, but maybe someone disagrees and they have a better idea. So tell us, like, let's, let's have a conversation. We're happy to revisit these, these episodes. In fact, I hope we do throughout, you know, the progression of trail society, like that's what we want. So yeah. Yeah. It inspires. Hit, hit us up. We want to continue these conversations with you as a community, as a trail society. Um, we're not always going to be right. We're very frequently going to be wrong. Um, but we hope that you are going to continue along this journey with us, um, as we continue to try to bring you authentic, genuine discussions week after week. Um, we want to thank you so much for joining us for our first 
ever episode of Trail Society. And we can't wait to bring you many, many more conversations to come. <laughs>